Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. I'm Karen Swallow Pryor. And you're listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, on which we are discussing Thomas Hardy's Test of the D'Urbervilles. We have come to the end, and now we can talk about all of the stuff without having to worry about revealing the stuff. Uh, this is um, a fascinating ending. We've got quite a bit of... Um, well, I've got two sections. We'll talk about phase six and phase, phase seven. And then um, next week, we'll answer your questions on the Q&A episode. So that will be available on the uh, Facebook page. And then if you also want to send in questions, you can email them to me at david at goldberrybooks.com. And then if you want to also just leave them, you can post them as a comment underneath this episode over on the Substack page. So those are ways you can send in your questions if you do have questions after we finish this episode. If at the end of this episode, you do not have every question about this book answered, those are the ways to send in your questions to us. Um, Heidi, do you want to be in charge of posting the thread on Facebook? I really do. Thank you. I feel <laughs> I'm up to the challenge. <laughs> Great. Well, if you forget, then I don't know what that says about, about you. But um, <laughs> um, Karen, how are you? It's been, it's been a couple of weeks since we've, we've talked. So we might as well just do a quick update on how everybody's doing. Oh, you're muted. <laughs> Other than forgetting how to unmute myself, I'm great. Um, getting into, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> getting into summer mode, doing a little traveling and speaking, and then um, and then ready to spend the last well, the, the six weeks of summer finishing my current book. So, mm. so you got to get a little break and then dive into that. Are you? Where are you in that book? Are you in the revision stage or? You have a draft back. Where, where, where's the, what stage are you on? Yeah, I am writing, finishing the last chapter as a draft, and okay. then I will have like six weeks to revise, which is really cutting it close mm. for me because so, I could do a lot of that. <laughs> when is that one coming out? When's the? Um, date? It's actually my COVID has slowed production down right. for all books, so right. I have to turn it in August first, and then it will be out in like June or July of twenty. Three, okay. so that's a yeah. you know long time. It's gone. Yeah, you you kind of you probably onto something completely new by the time you. Yeah. When you're doing press for that one, you're onto a new a new book. <laughs> Heidi, how are you? Besides living in a place that is not 110 degrees like it is here in I North know. Carolina, I just I feel like I probably complain about being chilly a little bit too much, but I'm just the weirdo who likes to be hot, <laughs> and I just like wait all year to be warm enough. And I zealously enjoy it. <laughs> and um, now you're so, complaining about yeah. it being 70. And then I'm like, it's 70 degrees and I'm freezing. So um, yeah, I'm doing great. We had the Close Reads retreat last week. David mm-hmm. and I were out there and it was amazing. And mm-hmm. so I feel very refreshed and renewed and full of love for books and community and all that. Yeah, same. Um so speaking of uh, being full of love, um, this book has a lot to say about nice that may different kind of love, may, very different experience. Like. <laughs> yeah. So at the end of this book, the flag has been the black flag has been hung. Um, you hang a flag; it has been strung. How do what do you do with a flag? It's been revealed on the turret or whatever. Angel is beginning a new phase of his life phase the eighth, I guess. And then uh, Alec is no more. And Tess has sent him into his own new phase. So nice. there's a lot to talk about here. And 
I was, as I was reading it, you know, I got to the end of the book. And of course, Karen has these sections of great questions. And there's a couple of questions that were things that I was wondering about. So I thought we could just turn to those because I imagine that as people are reading this edition, and I know many people are reading along with us in Karen's edition, uh, that they come to those questions and they might think, hey, well, it'd be great if we could hear some answers, to some contemplation of those questions on the podcast. But Heidi, I want to ask you a question first before I turn to a few of those. You haven't read this since college. Is that right? Correct. So having reread it for the first time in a while, what most surprised you about the end? Something that you didn't remember, something that maybe caught your attention um, or was different than you remembered or however you want to take the question. What surprised you the most this time? Uh, That's a really good question. Two things. Uh, One is I, I realized how differently we read as young people versus more mature people. Uh, There's a lot that I completely missed my first time around. And I realized, and this is something we've talked a bit about on the podcast, how as a woman, I read it very differently as a younger woman in the midst of my own tragic love stories, right? Versus how I do now. So there's a lot that I didn't catch the first time in a a literary sense because I was reading it through the lens of, I guess, existentially being around the same age as Tess. Um, And I caught this time that I had missed Angel's very clear moment of repentance that I found to be the most satisfying moment of the whole novel when he says, ah, it is my fault. I, and that to me was worth the read just to read those couple of words. Um, and what, what comes from it. And I, I didn't catch it as such a profound turning point of the novel and such a culmination of the novel this time as I, I just completely missed it last time because I just wanted to find out what happened. Um, so I, and the other thing that I realized as I got to the end um, is that I, I think this is the only novel I've read from the time that actually gave me a bit of a glimpse into what it would like to be a young woman during Victorian times who's not in the upper classes. Mm. I had, and I, that was something kind of important as I read it this time that I had never thought of before. I mean, you read Dickens and so you kind of know what it's like to be a young man, maybe in the poorer classes, but in the lower class, I, I, every Victorian novel I've read and I've missed plenty um, has been about upper-class women. And so this was my first time, like I learned so much. Especially about the work that they did. They do. Yes. Did, did. <laughs> but do I've always wondered what would you do with your life if you didn't get married young in these. And so I, I just mm. seeing it kind of from the bottom up versus the top down, um, was just really fascinating to me and something I had never thought of in reading mm. it the first time. Karen, is there anything that stuck out to you as that you noticed maybe for the first time? I mean, you've read this a bunch and you wrote a guide to it and you did this, this edition, you've taught it in school and, you know, and at college courses and all that, but that doesn't mean that you can't still be struck by something that maybe you never noticed before. Did anything stand out this time for you? Um, well now this time is really like when I was writing this, so I'm trying to remember. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) um, Yeah. uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know, but I'll keep thinking about that. 
Because you're right. I mean, it, there's something there. There's always something that, and it's not even just. Often, it's not even a plot point. Yeah, but yeah. With Hardy, it's like the language that he uses. So every time I read this, I'm like underlying new passages, like the way that that a description conveys something. So, but I don't have anything off the top of my head. Mm. Okay, so one thing that I was thinking a lot about was the question of justice uh, at the end of this book, and we get now that people have, now that people have read the book, we can talk about this. Alec dies, right? He gets stabbed through the heart uh, by Tess. Then. They get their Alec and I mean, I almost said Alec and Angel. Angel and Tess get their their honeymoon in the mm-hmm. the ruins, and then she gets sacrificed at Stonehenge, and then in the end she pays for killing Alec and Angel and her little sister walk off arm in arm at the end of the book, and so questions of justice are very fraught in this book through the whole thing. So I want to go to the last question that you put, Karen, for your phase the seventh reflection questions. Because you you write, in what way is this phase rightly titled fulfillment? And we have talked throughout this book, uh, throughout our conversations about this book, about the different section titles that Hardy gave it. And I was thinking about the connection of fulfillment with the question of justice. Mm. And I, I would love to talk about this a little bit. We'll work backwards in some of these questions because I imagine, like I said, that there's people who are listening that saw some of these questions and were wondering some, you know, would love to hear us talk about it. Um, Heidi, what do you think? Um, is it just simply, it's the fulfillment of the story? What, what's going on with his choice of that word there? Yeah, I think part of it, one layer, there's multiple layers to this. I think one of them is finally we get to see a little bit of Tessa's fulfillment in her relationship with Angel, which is what we have been waiting for and waiting for and longing for, for her to be loved and to experience the love of a man, which seems to be her deepest desire with Angel. Um, And to have him take at least a measure of responsibility. Um, And and we see that. We also see, I think, in a more negative sense, the fulfillment of um, the full weight of these men's depravity in her life and the consequences she has to pay for what they have done. Uh, and um, and then, of course, we see these questions, these complex questions of justice. And the word fulfillment raises the question: Was justice? fulfilled. So I think that there's multiple levels to that and probably even more than that. Karen, any anything else that I'm missing? Yeah, no, I mean, I think this is kind of what you were getting at in one of the responses, but just kind of the fulfillment of this um, tragic you know, cycle that we've talked about, like just one going all the way back to the beginning, all the series of events that sort of inevitably spiraled toward this. This was bound all of this was bound to happen in, in the tragic mode um but yeah yeah i mean it, it, it's at fulfillment of angel and tessa's love fulfillment um for tess to sort i mean i think her killing of alec is is a kind of poetic justice right um that she achieves and then of course she you know true justice has to see her life being taken and then 
you know, and this is the next to last question, and it, it really is a, a tricky one. Um, you know, what do we make of Angel ending up with Liza Lou? I mean, if that's the note that Hardy ends this on, then that is supposed to be part of the fulfillment too. Do you do you take Hardy as trying to be hopeful with that? I, you know, I do. I mean, it's, it's definitely something that makes us, uh, in the 21st century sort of uncomfortable, you know, and we don't, it's not romantic. We don't like it, but I, I think yeah. it's really more of a symbolic, you know, so, so there is, because throughout, you know, family is important. Lineage is important. And so angel ends up with kind of like, you know, a, a different version of Tess, like it's another chance. And mm. again, you know, on a level of realism, I don't think we like it, but I think this is how we're, we are supposed to take it that um, Tess wanted, you know, Tess loves her sister. Um, her, she can achieve fulfillment through her sister picking up where she left off. I think that's how we're supposed to take it as icky as it is in a way. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, she even she like sort of, sort of tries to prepare the reader. Hardy seems to be when he has Tess say, "It's happening all the time. All the girls in the neighborhood are, you know, all these men are marrying their sisters-in-law. Um, like it's it's fine. It's customary." <laughs> Heidi, do you personally like? Let's set aside the Hardy part. We'll come back to that in a second. As a reader, do you take it? Do you experience it as hopeful? I mean, I know that's. Again, those are two different questions. Hardy's version, Hardy's right. goals and your experience are two different things. But let's do your experience and then talk about Hardy's goals. Yeah, I think that personally, I, I completely agree with Karen. Um, and I also agree with Karen that 20th century readers, including myself, are going to find this kind of cringy uh, for lots of reasons. Um, I think this particular ending and I didn't want to bring this up this is this is a book that has comes together at the end and Karen I think you said that a couple of times that um what one question that we've wrestled with um on the podcast a couple of times is does Hardy buy into the Victorian idealism of women and and of virginity and and I think my answer to this question is yes for a couple of reasons, and partly because Liza Lou is offered as a pure and version of Tess, right? They look the same, they have the same lineage, and she's a younger sister who is unspoiled, right? And Tess has been a part of protecting her, which is a redemptive. I I, I find that personally redemptive that Tess has um has been a shield and a fence around her sister. And that and there's allusions within this section that men have been chasing after her little sisters. And so I think that that is redemptive. Um, but I, I think the fact that he gives a virgin younger sister of Tess who looks like her to Angel is, I, I think there is a bit, even within the world of the novel that says that Hardy at least is still kind of buying into this idea of a pure wife being a worthy wife. Um, although he's exploring the question of force um, and coercion in other ways, I kind of yeah. think that that's part of it. 
Do you agree with that, Karen, or do you think he's being more subversive than she's suggesting there? Mm. There's multiple opinions on this. So right, I'm right. This over no, yeah, no, no. I mean, I, yeah, I do. I mean, again, I just have to keep going back to the subtitle of the novel, you know, A Pure Woman mm-hmm. Faithfully Presented. So Hardy is clearly presenting Tess as pure. I think he's maybe making an accommodation or concession to this world and even to angel as a character yes angel has repented and changed but maybe he's not changed enough to you know to really be happy with any one thing less than a a virginal wife so i still think i i mean i think i think by having this tragic ending for tess whom hardy considers pure i think that is he's showing even if in a mythic way and a sort of an outsized way he's showing um the problem with this value of women so devaluing yeah so then is this ending then with all its with all these questions that are there is it cathartic i mean you use that question or use that word in your questions i think in one of them i don't remember exactly which one i can Mm -hmm. but do you do you find the ending cathartic karen yeah i I mean i do according to the I, again, I would compare it to Oedipus Rex, right? I mean, because Oedipus, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, Oedipus has sort of unknowingly killed his father and married his mother, but community and societal justice, re, you know, require a penance for that. They require justice for that. And so I don't think Hardy is throwing justice out. Um, he has tests um, justly punished. Uh, justly in term in the terms of his society um and so we are like it didn't have to be that way that's kind of the whole point um there is an evening and out a balance of right and wrong but what we're supposed so that's the catharsis um but we're still left seeing because hardy makes us see that it didn't have to be this way so I think that it is cathartic because, um, you know, in a, in a more modern novel, I guess, you know, it would be either more nihilistic or, you know, or Tess would get away with it. Um, there's just something about just sort of the, the scales balancing that makes a real tragedy work. How do your students respond to Tess's final moments? And then Heidi, I'll come back to you on the catharsis question, but I'm curious to know what 18 to 22 year olds yeah. think of this. Well, they love the honeymoon, of course, you know, and they love um, the way that Angel um, asks the um, police to let Tess sleep. You know, it's very this part is very romantic um, in the best way, I think. Um, And uh, so I think they love that moment. And it's really they really are more disturbed uh, by, you know, Liza Lou and Angel than than Tess's death, I think which I get as well. (laughs) Yeah. If you haven't read a lot yet, or you're kind of, Mm -hmm. I'm sure your students are well-read, but they probably haven't read everything they will read. (laughs) (laughs) So those kind of endings and those kind of relationships maybe are less familiar. Heidi. Let me just throw in there. I mean, they're very old Testament, right? It's true. I mean, this is what men were supposed to do is to, to marry, you know, the, 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 their brother's widow or, you know, and to take care of the women. And so, and Hardy, we know he, you know, he has a lot of biblical illusions here. So I think that actually, it helps the Christian reader, um, that kind of background helps them a little more. True. That, That makes sense. Heidi, catharsis for you? Yeah, for sure. 
I think there's lots of cathartic moments and there's a really long buildup like that part <laughs> is part six is there's a, it's long and, um, Hardy, I think is it, there's different, there's kind of disagreement, I think in, from what I've seen about whether or not his pacing works in this novel, because there's long amounts of time that you're waiting for something to happen. But then once the thing happens, it kind of happens all in a row. Like this part seven is like, boom, 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 boom. There's murder. There's human sacrifice. There's the, there's a honeymoon, like there's all these things happening, um, in a pretty condensed amount of time after a long period of tests, like extravagantly suffering and resisting temptation and all these things. And so, um, there, yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely a sense of catharsis in, in terms of things are finally happening. Tess finally has some agency, whether it's enough agency is debatable, but she has, I mean, murders age that that's agency. She's taking action, um, which is what we've been wanting for her. Uh, and she and Angel are reunited. Um, I think that the question of justice for Tess is really interesting because, as you said, Karen, to me, the more controversial issue is Angel and Liza Lou too, right? Which I'm not sure why, because Tess is so sympathetic the entire time. And you almost kind of like gloss over the fact that she's getting hanged for murder in spite of the fact that it's the one action she's ever taken to stand up for herself. And that's not the thing we're talking about at the end. That's kind of surprising. But I think Hardy does some interesting things with points of view in this section too, which David, I'm sure you're going to bring up with the, uh, how, how we're kind of displaced from some of the actions she takes. We don't actually see her die and we don't yeah. actually see her murder Alec. We're not there for it. And so that, that it does an interesting kind of sense of removal for us as the reader, but I still think we get the catharsis. Hmm. Well, one of the th reasons I think that the angel question at the end is so important besides the fact that it happens <laughs> is because this question of, <laughs> I think we're left with the question of whether Angel deserves to be given this second chance with her, with this quote, pure, pure woman. Um, the, the question of his morality and his virtue doesn't really get resolved in my mind at the end of the book. But do you feel, do either of you feel differently on that? I mean, you, Karen, you've read this more than I have. So maybe you, you may say that Hardy, whether through subtext or actual text, maybe wants us to to view Al, uh, Angel as actually being repentant and mm -hmm. sort of having truly moved to a more virtuous state. But I'm not sure that I see that. So what do you think about that? Yeah, well, again, you know, I would analyze this according to sort of the classical um, genre of tragedy. And so we don't, so it, we use we might use the word repentance, but I think what uh, we see in classical tragedy is is more like illumination, um, or um, yeah, uh, yeah, illum illumination or enlightenment. So that's actually part of the classical definition: is that the the noble character who experiences a fall through a com combined forces of of fate and a tragic flaw also experiences illumination in the process Th that's necessary for mm. it to be tragedy and so we could 
we could, and I like, this is one thing I like to discuss in class. I mean, it's obvious, obviously we're going to think of Tess as being the noble character who's experienced a fall. Um, and she, you know, even though she's a peasant girl, you know, Hardy brings in her, her noble lineage. So that's sort of a modern mm-hmm. twist on it. Yeah. Um, and she does experience illumination in the sense that, you know, she, um, she finally recognizes Alec for who he is. She, she, gains agency, which she's missed all along. It it is too late, as she says. Um, But also, I think, you know, just Angel recognizing that he got it wrong um, and that it's his fault. If it's not repentance in the Christian sense, it's certainly illumination in the classical sense. So then at the end of the book, given that we are supposed to read it as if moving forward, he is going to he now that he has been illuminated now that he has been enlightened he'll be moving forward on a v- virtuous path i mean i'm not saying he's perfect but that that the book would be suggesting that that's the setup but now with liza lu his life forward will be committed towards her in a more virtuous sense than he was for a time there in relation to tess i would yeah i mean again Vir, you know, I love virtue and I love virtue ethics. I'm not sure, sure. Hardy, you know, if that, okay, that's he, fair. he's yeah. more illuminated. You know, so he one of the things we've been tracing all along is that Angel has thought that he has rejected traditional morality and yeah, traditional he he religion. He thought he, yeah. he exactly. He thought he was enlightened. And then he the, the knowledge that he gains is not just about it being his fault and not just about repentance, but also Again, it is knowing that he was not enlightened, that he did not embrace, truly believe what he said he believed about, you know, traditional morality and and um, and and aristocratic lineage. And so he has gained self-knowledge, um, which I think is crucial. I mean, in some ways, I really I think Hardy, whether this was in his intention or not, I think Angel is really more of the tragic hero in the classical sense than Tess is. Um, so, yeah. That's interesting. Where's Alec playing to this whole thing? Then? <laughs> and then is Alec really our purest villain? That too, because Karen, you mentioned many times in this, in, in our conversations, Alex gets humanized here at the end as we, as we move further into the novel and come to the conclusion. Um, where does he, where where do you see that and where does where does he stand with you i guess okay so this is another really fun discussion that i like to have with my students and i don't remember if i included it in the discussion questions i probably did but um who loves tess more mm-hmm. alec or angel right i i think you know we could talk about this for a long time but i think in some sense as villainous and awful as alec is he actually does love Tess for who she is, he has a better hmm. understanding of who she is than Angel does. Who and views so, her with an ideal and an idealized. Yes, sense. exactly. Exactly. And 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 Alec doesn't require of course he shouldn't, but he doesn't Alec doesn't have a double standard, right? I mean, and many men, I mean, even <laughs> villainous men would often, you know, not marry while he, you know, or be with the woman that they had seduced. I mean, they would marry a pure woman. So even Alec yeah, has a code that kind for of the bad guys. 
Right. Even yeah, the bad yeah. guys I mean, have a code. Right. Right. Exactly. And and you know they would not marry the woman that they would that they ruined. Um, and so um, in some ways, Alec is more you know authentic, genuine, honest in his love. Again, it's it's not a good love, and I I wouldn't want to be with him. But um, Angel's love is really not that much better, if at all. I I'm going to echo what you're saying. I'm going to agree with you on this because he listens to her that conversation they have when she (laughs) lures him away from the gospel bait like that's such a complex moment right because she's parroting angel and then she's repeating and parroting angel to alec and then alec is intently listening to her he's the only that's the only time in the whole novel someone actually listens to tess and makes a change in their life based on something she says so many people claim to love her nobody actually listens to her except at the end when angel finally when she, he says let's run away and she says no like he goes with her plan at the end of the book yeah, I guess I never, I didn't notice that. So, but I don't, I don't distrust what you're saying. That's yeah. Maybe, but I mean, that's yeah, not, maybe so, that's but it's not the same kind the same. of dynamic that she's having there with Alec, but he even asks her, tell me more. And she's like, I don't know. I don't even believe it. I'm just repeating what my husband told me. So it's like a very complex moment psychologically mm-hmm. and literarily. Um, but I, I was a bit, I was so glad to see somebody paying attention to her as a person and being impacted by her instead of just overpowering her. Now, that doesn't mean, as Karen's saying, huge disclaimer, right? That does that does not mean that he's a good man or that that's any way good for her because it actually ends up twisting and becoming his pathway then to further exploit her and destroy her life even more. And so it's not a gateway to any kind of moral goodness as you're pointing out, like it remains complex, but he is impacted by her in a way that no other character in the book is. So what's more loving to do your duty towards someone or to, uh, be, have great passion towards someone. No, to use the doesn't duty, ever get the both, duty right? desire yeah. question that right that's think, the, right. the lack of yeah those two I mean, things it's coming together destructive like it the the fact that those are never united really in in the story except for that honeymoon time um but even then there's a bigger duty hanging over them which is justice for murder and so their t- their days are numbered but there's you're exactly right like they both, you know, Angel has this very distorted sense of duty that rules his life and causes immense damage to Tess. Alec is the other way. He has this very great desire to possess her and he takes what he wants, creating and wreaking havoc. And so, you know, an equally interesting conversation that I've is which does more damage to Tess, right? Which one loves her more? Which one hurts her more? And that there's that very revealing moment when Alec is pursuing her uh, as she's, you know, working in the fields and her employer is there and Alec comes in with this like misplaced sense of protection over Tess, right? And Tess tries to fend Alec off and saying to him, 
this man, meaning her employer, he's not going to hurt me. He's not in love with me. She equates a man being in love with her with a man hurting her because of this giant distortion on each side of the duty desire kind of dichotomy that plays out in her life, taking her down like one notch at a time throughout this novel. Mm. Karen, before I follow up, you have, you have your own follow up here. No, go ahead. Go ahead. So, okay. I was just going to ask that when we get to the end of the book then, and we have angel post his return, he comes back out of what seems like a sense of duty to her. She's written to him. He has gone through this great this illness. Things have not worked out for him. He realizes that he made a mistake and, and he says, this is my fault. The situation she's in is my fault. So then at the end of the book, does is his love for her, is he coming back and returning to her purely out of a sense of duty? And or it or is it more of a is it a more fulfilled and shall we say enlightened sense of love that he comes back to her because of period question. That's a great question. And I think <laughs> debatable. Um, I think a really important question. He claims that he's trying to do the right thing. Um, but there's a lot of evidence within the text that even his conversion to evangelicalism is because of his kind of fervent spirit. That's always looking for the next rush. Uh, and, um, and so I think you can make the case that even his claim to duty is out of his lust to possess her. So in a way, they both come back to her out of a sense of duty. Like Alex sees her, he's converted out of, he's got this zealous conversion that happens. He comes back to her, hears her story. And then out of there's some sense in which he has, he or at least pretends to have the sense of duty yeah, towards he her because of his baby and all that. But really, it's probably pure passion. Angel comes back and he says, "This is all my fault." You know, he comes back to her, and he he feels guilty coming back from his failed excursion as a farmer and all that. So, in the end, do either of them like? Do we feel like in the end, Angel actually does love her in a true sense? I mean, I would say Alec. I don't know. That guy's just a creep. <laughs> so both Karen and I just made a case for Alec in, in granted that it's all distorted and damaging, right? So let me ask what you is, one do, clarifying do you question have, though. Well, okay, go ahead. So, but when you talk about Alec, is that up to a certain point or is it like, if you look at the whole book comparing the two of them, there's a, there's a case to be made for Alec or is it like up to the point when Angel comes back to that point, there's been a case for Alec. Yeah, I mean, I would say through the whole thing, but I there's obviously an, another side, and that our listeners are yelling at their speakers right now. So, anybody want to speak for Angel? Um, I mean, so I guess I'll just this, these are such good questions. I mean, I think both Angel and Alec are, um, you know, they're they're they continue to be complicated, and Hardy doesn't he doesn't give us in either of them sort of a full conversion or transformation or repentance. Um, and, you know, I, I think that that's important because I was just remembering, uh, and I don't, again, I don't remember if I put this in the question or if I noticed it before, I'm just noticing it now, but when Angel comes back 
uh, and he's searching for Tess and he comes and he looks for her at her lodging and, and he's told that she go, you know, she's, she's Mrs. Derbyfield. And he says, Oh, she's passing as a married woman, even though she didn't take my name. And like, he still cannot imagine. <laughs> he still can't imagine that she would be with Alec or anyone. Right. He still, so he still doesn't have a realistic sense of, of who she is, even when he comes back. So in some respects, maybe his real repentance is when, you know, that he, and I'm just thinking out loud here, that he accept not only accepts her, but embraces her and stays with her after she's committed this murder. Well, and also that she'd gone off with Alec again. Yeah, right, right. So, right. So she, but again, is he, is that just self-recrimination? Is he just doing, fulfilling his duty or does he really love her? I think, I, I think this is a question. Has he just, or if, if I may, like, has he, if, has he just recast his duty in his mind Mm. and redefined it, but still Mm -hmm. doesn't see her as a person, but is willing to like kind of change the rules. And now he's living mm -hmm. by this other rule. Mm -hmm. And so but I do think we have evidence of real tenderness toward mm-hmm. her. When and you ask to And that's why I found the moment when he says, ah, it is my fault satisfying because I was, I had forgotten what happened there, like how the conversation went. And I was bracing myself for another like storm of emotion from him, mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. him. Oh, I can't believe you did this. And I mean, I knew, I remembered what happened next, but I, that Mm -hmm. the fact that his immediate response when she says you never came from me and so he won me back which is a really interesting phrase right Mm -hmm. he won me back to him Mm -hmm. like that he that angel's first response was not to blame her but to say ah it is my fault like Mm -hmm. i found that moment very satisfying more satisfying than their honeymoon more satisfying mm-hmm. than anything else that comes after, but just for him to not turn it around and blame her, but to take it on himself mm-hmm. um, without asking for more information or circumstances or needing to be convinced. That to me was moving. And mm-hmm. the only the only part of the whole book that I found actually moving coming from Angel that I was like, oh, I'm a little bit on your side right mm-hmm. now. Well, if we can talk about like kind of the most moving parts, because I, yeah. I really, you know, this, um, I, I really, I mean, of course the whole final scene is when Angel comes and it, everything is, but I think maybe the most poignant part in this part for me is Tessa's specific accusation against Alec. Like the reason she kills him is because he told her that Angel wouldn't come back. And so that just, I mean, that just culminates so many things because because she believed what he said and because she believed him, she didn't wait for Angel. I mean, all of the tragedy is in that particular statement. It's not just that she gave up on her own and decided to go with Alec, right? She's blaming, she's saying he told her that he wouldn't come back. Um, Mm. And that just, I don't know, that's just where the knife twists for me in this story. It's very, very um, tragic and poignant and hard. I think the way he is so manipulative and directly dishonest and of course violent towards her is what makes him different than the angel f- 
for me. Like there is something I wouldn't, I don't know if I know that I want to call Alec a villain, but he is dishonest. He is, he's a scoundrel. He like, I don't know, whatever you pull out the thesaurus, scoundrel, miscreant, blackguard, whatever, whatever words you want to use for someone like that. Whereas I view Angel as a fool. I think I view him as a fool and like, I don't know, a dunderhead. <laughs> like I, I view him as, um, as thinks he, as, as someone who is prideful and foolish and, and be, his pride and his foolishness and his lack of wisdom lead her to get hurt. Um, I, that is not to, to, to say that Alec, I think is worse than angel is not to excuse angels abandoning of her, but Alec is so aggressively, um, a scoundrel to her e- over and over again. And so specifically dishonest with her mm. um, and, man- and manipulative is maybe even a better word. Like when he says that she's not going to come, that, that, that uh, Al- angel is not going to come back. It's not, he doesn't know that right. he's right. just being manipulative. Right. And that his, his, his posture towards her is so much the posture of a scoundrel and a miscreant that I, I'd have a great deal more sympathy and judge him so much more harshly than I do angel. But I don't know if that's, if that's uh, maybe that's not fair to him or to harsh enough to angel. Totally fair. And I'm so glad you said that because I, I think they've, they both do so much damage. Somebody has to kind of point the finger at him and, and say angel loved her more. Like, that's why I was like, somebody defend angel here, because I think it's a bit of a toss up. And in a way, I think our reactions are kind of just preference. Which one do you understand more? Which one do you make more excuses for? Um, which and because they both do such profound damage to her, mm-hmm. and 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 their actions directly lead to a pure woman's death and 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 death under terrible circumstances. She had what five days of happiness, and even then, this was hanging over her. She had just committed murder, and and it was and and she never. My question at the end is not about Angel. My question at the end is about her, is about Tess. Do we get to hear enough from her? Does she experience self-knowledge at the end? Does she have illumination? Does she have any kind of what the Christian word repentance or, or the classical word metanoia? Does she, does she ever recognize and see herself and her own worth Oh, I've and, got a, I've got a, yeah, I've got yeah. a question about Tess before we finish, but we can dive right into that now. Karen, no, what do you no, think? I'm no, fine with yeah. doing it anytime. No, no, let's, I mean, this is, this is the question. This is the one that I've kind of raised, I think a couple of times throughout mm-hmm. the series is, you know, because my answer to that question is based in part on my not complete, but partial, um, understanding. I mean, it's, it's so complicated, but that, that, Tess is not really fleshed out fully as a character. She's kind of just this innocent vessel. woman who's pure <laughs> vessel, right? To like to expose, y- yes, yes, and and so I don't think yeah. she is as complicated as a character uh, is ma- is made as complicated and as human as a character as um, as Angel and Alec are. I think in some ways she serves the purpose to to display the complications of these characters who represent the sort of mm. 
you know, the, the social criticism Hardy wants to make. Um, but, oh, and I do want, before I forget, because I never yeah. thought of this, David, yeah, yeah. Your, your your commentary on both characters was so helpful. Um, so I think that, that in sort of like classical and neoclassical terms, which are not, well, I get, yeah, Hardy is kind of drawing on the, the classical tradition. Um, what we, Angel would be um, a fool and Alec would be a knave. And in mm. classical terms, those are equally bad. And I think we don't, I think we have a more generous, um, in like late modernity, we have a more generous attitude toward foolishness or stupidity. Um, do you think that's has to do with our, the way we think about wisdom and virtues? Yes, like I do. Okay. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you're, you're, what you were saying a few minutes ago just really made me think about this that I, and I never thought about it before, um, that I think we probably most of us are more sympathetic toward angel for all the reasons we've talked about in past episodes, but also if his vice is like just being foolish, I don't, you know, I think we have a tendency to see that foolishness is not as great a sin as knavery. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Nave, nave is, I, nave is a better word than scoundrel. Right. I mean, besides well, being like, I, I mean, but it's miscreant. Is, I thought yeah. miscreant was on point. <laughs> but but those are the it, you'll see that a lot in 18th yeah. century literature and, and even satire, right? Satire, um, you know, it criticizes either vice or foolishness, right? Um, and they're considered equally bad. And um, yeah, I, I just never thought of this until you were talking about. Well, and not characters. to pull the ultimate card, but I'm going to, that, it's that way <laughs> in the Bible, like in, in the book of Proverbs, uh, foolishness and wickedness have the same consequences. This is something I tell my kids all the time. That's why they can never use the, I forgot excuse, or I didn't mean to excuse, right? The consequences are just as dire on a human soul, whether they meant to or not. And that is a... I mean, Proverbs is very clear. If you intend wickedness or if you are simply a fool, it leads to death and death for the soul, death for the body. And, and so you don't get to ever pull the I didn't mean to card. Right. And I think a lot of that comes down to the classical in this novel is that it, as Karen, your your really important distinction between illumination and repentance. Right. I used the, the religious word repentance, but that's not something that Hardy would have held up as important. Right. And in fact, he ridicules it. And in and, and Alec. And, and Clinton seems to say his repentance meant nothing, right? And it's because yeah. Alex still didn't know himself. And Angel, in spite of the fact that he wants to be good because he doesn't know himself, he commits these terrible actions on a pure woman. Um, and even Tess, because she doesn't know herself, she's hanged at the end and the black flag so, goes up. So then using, in the context of these terms, knave and fool, would the classical and neoclassical thinkers and writers and so forth have viewed Angel's abandonment of Tess when she confesses to him her situation as the same as Alex. I'm just going to say Alex's rape. I mean, I know there's different, uh, but for the sake of conversation, Alex's rape of Tess, would they have been viewed as kind of the same level, Karen? I think in in classical terms, I think Angel's sin, well, that's not a classical term, Angel's <laughs> error yeah, yeah. Um, was not rejecting Tess. It was his his um his 
overweening pride in thinking that he knew himself Got it. enough to know, to think that he actually believed that his professed, you know, progressive views. So, so it, so his, so that was, was the sin that led to the abandonment. There was something yes, that, yes. that happened prior that was right. in, an inner disease or right. whatever that led to right. him to make that, a bad choice. Because, right. Because he, he thought, you know, he was prideful in assuming he knew about Tess. He was prideful in assuming he knew himself. Um, and that, I think that's his like sort of original error. So the vice okay. is oh, the sin more than the action. What do you mean? Oh, like the vice of not knowing the vice yourself. of not knowing of pride mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. where the mm-hmm. sin is, not just the action of leaving. Mm-hmm. Like now we're just right. The way we think mm-hmm. of, I mean, again, this goes back to the way we think of mm-hmm. wisdom and virtue ethics mm-hmm. as it, it's different mm-hmm. now than. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, another, you know, another of his, you know, mistakes that he made in his own knowledge was not knowing what purity is too. Right. Because mm-hmm. he thinks that purity is virginity when purity is more, you know, the state of her soul, which we've mm-hmm. talked about before. So yeah. that, yeah. you know, it's, he, he thinks he knows so much, but he's so ignorant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Heidi, you were going to say something before I ask that question. Well, I'm just making a connection that I hadn't made before. So, there's there's so many references to the pagan world and the association of Tess with the pagan world. I mean, to the point that they have her, you know, getting arrested while she's laying on a sacrificial stone at Stonehenge, a little bit on the nose, right? So we've got this whole, uh, all this like body of images and illusions and contrasts to Christianity versus paganism and knowing Hardy's um opinion about Christianity and wondering if, if kind of at least some of the purpose of that is to call attention to the pagan ethic. And is that, is, is that possible, Karen, or am I overreaching here? I think, I think what party's doing and, and this probably, you know, a lot of room for nuance and disagreement here, but I think essentially he's, he's showing that Christianity is a superstition in the same way that paganism was. So he's, yeah. Um, so that, and it can lead to the same kind of horrible errors and death and destruction. Right. But it's just so, uh, so emphasized within the story, this, this contrast between the two. Um, and I think, I mean, I think it definitely works and, and adds and deepens the story. Um, but he right, does. But, so is yeah. it a contrast or is it a similarity? And I think that's what I'm saying is right. he's showing the similarity right. through the contrast. Like they're both. Right superstitious and outmoded and functions right for the sake of time i want to talk about tests because we could go on many uh paths many an hour on this conversation (laughs) and we do have the q a next week so but uh but the question was brought up of tess's own does she does she acquire any self-knowledge does she acquire any enlightenment Uh, i think was another word that was used um, let's talk about that. And then I've got even a more specific question that I'm curious about Hardy's thoughts on, well, I'll save it. So what do we think? Does Tess, does she achieve any self-knowledge? How do you post posited the question? So then should I let Karen answer your question or do you want to take a stab know, at your... You are the, you are the boss here. All right. Then we'll let Karen take the first stab and then we'll let mm-hmm. you, we'll let you respond to that either in the affirmative or by disagreeing. <laughs> So I've never thought about this exact question this way. So I'm just trying this on for size. So thank you for the opportunity. Um, So I want to say that, you know, Tess throughout is Hardy 
depicts her as like a child of nature and, you know, someone who sort of responds out of animal nature. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean like as a human being who has passion and desire and sexuality and all these things. Um, and she's close to nature. I want to say that what she does is in killing Alec. And we talked about it as an act of agency. I think it's more of an animalistic response mm than a spiritual intellectual one. So I'm going to put that on the side and sort of keeping a tally here over the years of Hardy's <laughs> Hardy's lack of developing her as a complicated human and more just presenting her as someone who just sort of, a, she's close to nature and she just responds as a, you know, as like an animal would to um, some sort of attack. I don't, yeah. Hmm. I don't know that she receives, you know, that she has like an intellectual or spiritual enlightenment. That's my answer today. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk next week. We can find out if you changed your mind. Heidi, what do you think? I totally agree with that, like 100%. And I can't tell in reading the novel. I'm going to go back and read some key passages again, I think. Um, I, I have a pretty strong response to it, too. I wish, like, I really am disappointed. I wanted... A, I wanted a moment of illumination for her. Um, and I wanted more than just an impassioned letter throwing what, uh, what amounts to a temper tantrum to angel saying, I will never forgive you. I've thought about it. You know, that, that letter does not suffice as a, uh, as holding him accountable. I, does it make is it cathartic for the reader though from a dramatic perspective i don't know what i what i can't decide david and karen is is how hardy intends for her to be seen here i can't tell if it's he knows very well what he's doing and is presenting her as having this lack of education and care and nurturing in her life and and so therefore she's not quite whole and able to have self-knowledge which is an indictment of the culture and the the personal traumas she's been through right i can't tell if it's that or if he's a product of his culture has and idealizes her so much that she is a vessel for his own pathologies about women or Again, whether or not he is intending to portray her as a full human being, and just and, and just fails. So I have, or a maybe there's another option. I yeah. have a related question yeah. I never thought of. Okay, so you, this is really this is such a good discussion for me. Anyway, <laughs> um, so fun. why why does why does Hardy? I don't think I've ever thought of this. Why does Hard? Why does Tess kill Alec? Because. You know, because it, when Angel shows up, they could have just she could have just said, oh, Angel, you're back. Let's go. Right. Is it because she sort of assumes or just instinctively knows that she'll never be good enough for Angel because she's and, it's, and, and she she wasn't before and she isn't now? Is it out of just, you know, passion or revenge? Because really, she could have just gone off with angel and not suffered the death penalty so what is hardy showing by having and this is the same what we were just talking about but another way of asking what is hardy showing about tessa's character by having her kill alec murder alec instead of just running off with angel that's my question for you guys agreed i i i thought of that a lot of times while i was reading it because her stated reason is as you pointed out to defend angel not herself. She says, right? I owed it to you and to myself. 
she says that, but then she says, because he attacked, right? Because he said, because he claimed the angel wouldn't come back. And then he said some bitterly something. You have the passage right there, David. He accused sure angel um, of not being a good man. And to me, I'm like, he wasn't a good man. And so th- th- again, like Tess at, and this, Ever since she meets and she is defined by her love for him. And that is what I mean by, is she a vessel for Hardy's kind of pathologies about women? That even in trying to flesh out this character, he sees a a pure woman as being a woman who is defined by her love and abject position before a man she loves. And I don't mean that. And that like, I'm, as you all know, I'm not like a feminist, like, you know, I'm not out there marching. I just, I can't tell if she has any other identity as presented in the novel other than her love and desire for love. So, okay. Capacity for love. That's what I see. For the sake of conversation, we can talk about why we can talk about the question of why she kills him in a second, but for the sake of conversation, let's accept that. Let's accept what you're saying. Does Hardy do that on purpose though? Like in other words, yeah. Is it part of the point or is it a flaw? Mm-hmm. Like, is he keeping her sort of one note and uncomplicated as part of the kind of essential goal of the novel? Of the yeah, the indictment culture. of the culture. Or is it that he just never quite gets to what he's reaching at with her? What do you think of that, Karen? I mean, I don't know how we exactly mm-hmm. answer that, mm-hmm. but yeah, no, no. I mean, I guess I, w- I, I would say that this, however, much he fails to humanize and complicate Tess, I would say it's a blind spot. Okay. I, I think, yeah. 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 I agree. I'm, I'm very, I, I think it's number two. I think if it's number one, it still is a flaw because he, he could have put more into the novel to point us towards being able to interpret it that way. I, that's a generous mm-hmm. reading to say mm-hmm. he did it on purpose in order to do, indict the surrounding mm-hmm. culture. Right, right. And maybe that's the right answer. If he did, I'm, I think there's enough ambiguity that it feels mm-hmm. more like number two, but here's mm-hmm. what I can't tell. And this is, this is my honesty. I can't tell how much of that is because I'm a modern woman. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. I think we I think it's just wise as readers to, to ask the question, like if we see a flaw, especially in a novel that's mm-hmm. lasted, what seems like a flaw, it's just wise to say, well, is it possible that this is part of the purpose before we say, right, this is a flaw? Because right. if you just start judging everything like that, mm-hmm. then, you know, then it's easy to be blinded by your own blindness. Well, and usually I am Karen, I'll come back to you. a vociferous <laughs> defender of, I, and I, I think you would. See, I, usually I am the vociferous defender of the author did it on purpose. And here's why I think maybe that would be yeah. in this case. I'm not convinced. Well, he did. He did have 600 pages to do it. So <laughs> Karen, what are you, what are we going to say? Yeah. I, I, I feel like I'm going around and round in my own head because, um, you know, because at one moment, a few seconds ago, I wanted to say, well, you know, the, again, going back to the subtitle, a pure woman faithfully um, presented, why does she have to be pure? Like, why does it matter that the woman is pure when we got the men who aren't right? And then <laughs> yeah. I think, okay, but so that, but that's it. So that would be answer number two. But then I think, okay, well, what if he's, you know, he's engaging in a kind of dialectic or a po- even right. a polemical, right? So yeah. he's, he's, you know, he, so I, that leaves me without an answer to the question, but. <laughs> so. well, but maybe that's why this is a book 
mm-hmm. that lasts the 115 years, 20 years later, or whatever it is, where still people are still having these conversations because he is at least gifted enough as a writer to and in tune enough with to some degree with human nature to to enough of a degree with human nature for these questions to be there for us to to talk about like if they weren't there we would just kind of forget about it but because these questions are here there's lots of stories about women who have had terrible things happen to them and their tragedies but they don't all last the way this book has um so you know whether we can answer it or not i guess is kind of not the point of the dialectic sometimes <laughs> but let me ask you this when it comes to tests, how much are we supposed to? Okay, I'm going to use. I'm going to put this in extreme terms. How? And I hesitate to even ask this question, but I feel like the question is there in the book. How much are we supposed to blame her for what happens to her? Obviously, she does take agency in the end. We've talked a lot about how she doesn't often make choices that are to her own benefit either. And the book makes it talks a lot about her own pride um, and how she refuses money when she could take it and how there's, you know, there's different people that would be willing to help her. And she's never, she's not willing to ask and Hardy himself, not other characters seems to at least be suggesting to us that her pride is part of the problem here. So I don't want this to be one of those situations where we're saying, girl endures terrible circumstances, but she brings it upon herself. That's not what I'm saying. But within the context of the novel, how much does Hardy want us to sit, to look at her and, and say, if she, her own pride or her own failures to, to act when she could lead her to be in the situations that she's in? How, so the question is, how much should we be asking that of this novel? It seems like it's there, at least as an implication. Well, I I would say, you know, because it follows the pattern of classical tragedy, we are supposed to ask that question. And I think that the answer we're going to get, I mean, we would ask the same question of Oedipus Rex, right? Like how much was his own, you know, pride um, and anger and how much was, well, he didn't know. And I think, I think we're left with the same sort of paradox here. It's, it's both, if if I had to, you know, if someone, if I really had to vote for one, I would say, whether intentional or not, um, Hardy leans more on the fatalistic deterministic aspect of the story. But clearly, I mean, if it's not Tess's pride, she has that. It's also her passivity. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so, and that's something that's been handed down to her. Her father is Mm. passive, a 'er ne'er-do-well who doesn't do anything. And so that's her inheritance. So that, again, that's, Mm. That's her, but it's also what she's, it's her fate or her, what's been determined. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, I wrote, <laughs> I wrote like seven or eight times in this book. I just wrote the phrase sins of the fathers in the margins, because that is a theme that's like hovering over this book. Every time he's in the scene, he, it, you could write that in the margin and talk about a fool, but ellipsis. <laughs> Heidi, go ahead. I agree. I think that that's right. I think that anytime you have a tragedy, you have to ask yourself about the main character. And I don't think that we should let our um, kind of modern sensibilities get in the way of that. It's important to ask the question. And I I identify the same things. She does have this um, resist, this very like odd ability to resist actual help and embrace toxic help. (laughs) And um, she does it every time. Um, 
I do think that's part of what Hardy's doing though. Like the conditions right. of the time and the age and the places that she's grown up in and the family situation have led her that to be something that she is inclined sure. towards or the, she doesn't have the wisdom. I don't know what the word is exactly. Right. And so she makes I, bad choices. I totally agree. And every tragic cycle, every good tragic cycle gives some kind of reason for that you can trace backward for the choices that the character makes, whether it's a backstory or whether it's, you know, a, prophecy from the gods uh, to go back to Oedipus Rex. There's always a reason why a character makes a choice. In a good story, we're given a, a compelling reason why character goes one way or the other. And I think in a story like this, it's very tempting to say, hands off, like, don't blame the victim. Like, this, this is like a, a sacred cow right now. You cannot... Uh, kind of mess with this dynamic. If a woman is attacked by a man, she just, it's just not her fault. And that's true on one sense. That is a hundred percent true. Um, but then on the other, since we are given this, this, uh, this complexity of the story with multiple layers of interpretation. And in order to get to the heart of the story, I think we have to trace those like down through the maze, through the labyrinth and kind of get there. And I think with Tess, we do have a passivity, um, which is what, what, also complicated by Hardy in a good way that because he talks about her willfulness and her passion often, right. And her like kind of zeal that's embedded within her. Um, and we also then have her with just this deep longing to be mm. loved yeah. and the longing to be loved in Tess. She is, can the re, she refuses toxic help. Like I said, generally from women, Right. Um, and she's reaching out for the love of a man throughout the whole novel. And that actually is true psychologically for women. And um, like that, there is something within the heart of a woman that does long to be protected and cared for and, and, and sheltered by a man's love. And uh, whether it's a father or a husband or a brother, and we see that in her to tragic results, which is not her fault, but it's part of her psychology. And that's important. Right. And, and I agree with all that. And again, Hardy is clearly showing where society and culture plays a role in, in taking those natural um, conditions and, and um, the human condition of uh, woman's condition and, and making her even more vulnerable or distorting it, you know, because her mother, her mother, she comes home and she says, why didn't you tell me to her mother? Like she didn't yeah. know. So if she, you know, she was made more vulnerable by, you know, lack of education and, and, um, and knowledge and wisdom um, that wasn't her fault. So it's, it's, I mean, that's the whole, to me, this, this is the whole, the complexity and the brilliance of the novel is showing that all of these things are factors and it's not just one or the other. Mm -hmm. One thing I was struck by in the way he characterizes her towards the end of the book is how when Angel is around her for so much of the book previously, like even when he's trying to decide if he's going to leave, it talks a lot about how she could use her femininity or whatever. It talks a lot about her beauty and her hair and all this kind of stuff. And it does mention that the first time he sees her. But then after that, we don't get as much of that when he comes back and they're like, even on the sort of honeymoon period and all that, like he characterizes her a lot less by her beauty after she kills Alec. And I don't know if that's just a function of he's wrapping the story up and so he's not spending less time with that. But I was kind of fascinated by that choice. Um, it seems like the action, that action becomes what Hardy is interested in with her. Whereas through much of the book, he was interested in 
the way her beauty is both an asset and a problem for her and for women like her in the culture uh, that they were living in. Do you think that, do you think it's, I mean, do you think that that's just a function of him being like, all right, we're, we're to the, we're to the, you know, denouement time. (laughs) Let's let's wrap this thing up. I'm ready to go home. Or, Or how do you, I mean, am I just reading into that? No, it's a great observation. Um, and I, I think part, whether it's, again, whether it's intentional or not, I think part of it is that these two souls, even for this short time, are finally knitted together and united, right? So the wooing part is over, the courting part is over, and they are actually like together mm. um, as short a time as it is, like it's consummation, right? Um, and so maybe so those things, you know, almost like, it's not that they're not important, but they're just they're less important because they are together. Okay. I also, hold on though. I I have one comment about that. I, I do think that Tessa's ambivalence towards her own beauty is one of the psychological details that Hardy does nail about. That is really true to life. And I I think he really captures that in her and Mm. it's subtle. It's subtle enough that he didn't necessarily need to put it in there, but it's so true to life and, and psychologically compelling in that last section in sections in phase six, that like her, that's such a main theme of that. And I love that. And then there is though, the contrast between her beauty now that she is Alex's mistress and well-dressed mm-hmm. um, and now her beauty is her livelihood, right? Mm-hmm. Which is what she's been trying to avoid and being ambivalent mm-hmm. about. Um, that's why she's and, so upset that Alec manipulates her. Exactly. Into that. And then yeah. uh, there's this contrast between that, her enhanced beauty un- as Alex's mm-hmm. mistress um, and, um, and Angel's uh, physical collapse, Right and, right. and he's embarrassed about that. Right, he knows right, he's not as handsome right. as he was, and she's so beautiful. But the emphasis, but David, you're still right because the emphasis is coming from Angel, not from Tess. Mm, she doesn't mm. even see it. Right. And, and you know, that that's a reflection, I think, and this you're right, Hardy does as well, of her innocence and her purity, right? Because she doesn't see her beauty as something to, you know, to manipulate or to use or leverage. It's just she doesn't even recognize she's so innocent, she doesn't recognize it. So at the end, she's lying on the the sacrificial slab stone, slab at Stonehenge, <laughs> yeah. And um, even there, you know, I was waiting for Hardy to talk about how she's so beautiful lying there and mm-hmm. angels looking at her brown hair gathered around her neck or whatever it is. And it doesn't talk about that, but it does... Um, it does talk about how there is a sort of kindness and mercy shown by the officers before mm-hmm. they arrest her when the angel begs them to let her sleep. And you have question 10 in, in, the, in the book. You say, what do you make of this kindness and mercy shown by the officers before arresting Tess? So I'd like to end with that one for this week. And again, Q&A next week. So we'll, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll touch on a lot of other things. What, what is it about this situation that causes them to act Mm. mercifully towards her mm. that yeah i mean i i think it's just sh- there you know, it is her beauty her innocence her purity that shines through they are clearly not coming after 
you know, a murderer that they think is, you know, dangerous and they are, you want to be vengeful about, I mean, there's just some, so, so they recognize the tragedy and they recognize the purity of her, um, in, in letting her do this. So I I think that's what comes, I think Hardy uses that to, to emphasize that. Hmm. It does say that um, the light was strong and a ray shone upon her unconscious form, peering under her eyelids and waking her. So this light shines on her. They're waiting, they're waiting. This light shines upon her, it wakes her up, and then she knows why they're there, which I think is, was just interesting. Uh, Heidi, what do you think about this scene? You want to add yeah, I, I mean, I think it's lovely. And I think that for, I was, it's nice to see some, men in authority actually sheltering her and protecting her. And, and that that's what she longs for. She's, she's in a sense given um, all of these gifts at the very last, right. Instead of throughout her life. Um, I thought that, that I was, I was thinking a lot about the word pure um, because she is a human sacrifice here. She sacrificed to the culture. She sacrificed to Angel. She sacrificed Alex. She sacrificed to the justice system. She's actually paying for what she's done. Um, and so, that, I mean, there's a very, very strong pagan sacrificial image here. Um, and I was thinking a lot about the word pure because sacrifices have to be pure um, and purified. And I was wondering even exactly what he means by pure, because at the first half of the novel, there's a lot of emphasis on how her sufferings have made her stronger and wiser, but that's not really explored in the second half of the novel. That kind of trails off a little bit, um, at least overtly. Like there's lots of overt statements from Hardy when we're told by Hardy, by the narrative voice, say the omniscient narrator, she has gained this depth of beauty of body and soul because of what she suffered through. And your point about waiting for her physical beauty to be described, I was waiting for that to happen in terms of her spiritual beauty. I was waiting to be told by Hardy, like that, you know, she would, she had this like calm demeanor and uh, she, because she was purified body and soul because she had been, you know, sanctified by her sufferings in a sense, but there wasn't that language either. Um, and Hardy's not one to avoid telling us what to think. And so <laughs> I was just really curious about that. So I noticed it in a different context than you did, you know, it's about the physical. I noticed more about this idea of kind of, I was, I thought he was kind of, kind of return to this idea shallow? of pure. No, <laughs> I am saying her beauty is maybe an objective correlative to her purity. Maybe, I don't know, but that's, um, <laughs> That it was, I, I I noted the absence of a description of Tess um, at the end as well. So when it says that the, so it talks a lot about how I think they even have a conversation right about the sun god or the um, sacrifice to the sun, and then the sun is what wakes her up while she's on this sacrificial slab. And then she goes off and is taken and she has to suffer the consequences. And interestingly, we don't get any sense of whether in her defense, she says, well, I was raped by this guy. Like none of her trial, we don't get any sense of how that was determined. Um, So we just have to accept the subsequent trial. Um, So given that, uh, Karen, how are we supposed to read this sort of, the, 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 the sun god sacrifice part of this because again the sun wakes her up she's on the slab the sun wakes her up she knows what's going on and she's whisked off to pay pay 
so I was trying to figure out what what's the equation here that Hardy's after with this this notion of the sun god, and then we can we'll stop there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, again, I would say you know I would I would say look at what he's saying about pagan religion, religious systems, and superstitions compared to Christianity, and is he saying, you know, it, it seems like he's saying that um, that this. S- <sighs> I, I don't think he's saying, I mean, I don't, he, this sacrifice isn't wrong. He's not criticizing it. He's, but he's, I think he's saying it's kind of the same. It's the human condition. Like we are fated to, to need okay, a sacrifice yeah. to seek a sacrifice. And it doesn't even really matter in his mind if it's, if it's pagan or Christian, I guess it's just sort of a myth. Hmm. I just, yeah. I mean, he just sets it up for so long. Almost that I expected her to die on the stone. She doesn't mm. die on the stone, but she is awakened by the sun. It's like they've sent the sacrifice to the gods, but then the gods would be unhappy unless someone pays for the crime that was committed. So the sun god mm. wakes her up so she can go get go pay at. I just found the whole thing kind of fascinating. How did you want to add anything to this before we go? Yeah, no, I, I like what Karen said. I think that's true. There, there was a mythological quality to this whole mm-hmm. last section, like the, the even the writing seemed to shift a little bit, and and I, I thought it was, I thought it was pretty funny how she just like lays down to take a nap on the sacrificial stone, <laughs> um, but it's it does have this like things happen in myths that don't happen in real life um, that are important to the story and that um, important to the symbolism of what, of, of what needs to be. And I think it's important to Hardy that we, we understand that what he's giving us is a sacrificial victim. Um, and, 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 and we, we really need to see her in that way. It seems very important to him that we recognize uh, are very important to the story, to the novel that we, that we recognize she's in how she is a vessel or a scapegoat for other people's mm-hmm. sins mm-hmm. and that right. that's being offered up. And I, and I do think just one, it is important. And I, I guess I, I don't know if I put this in the questions or not, but in that last paragraph, um, Hardy puts quotation marks around justice. So it's air quotes, justice. So that, you know, we're supposed to call into question whether this is truly justice. I think mm. I think what you just described, Heidi, is exactly what he's trying to say by doing that. Well, this has been fun, a little bit longer than normal. So I got to let you go. You both have busy lives and things to do. Um, we will do the questions next week, of course. And again, if you want to submit a question, you can submit them on the Facebook post, which Heidi is going to put up. You can submit them in the comments under the post over on our Substack page, which is closereads.substack.com. Or you can, of course, email them to me at david at goldberrybooks.com. Karen, Heidi, thanks so much. Oh, thank you. This has been great. Thank you. Well, waiting for Karen Swallow Pryor and David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. 